Welcome to The Rock Podcast. There's a lot of talk recently within Christian communities of the blood moon prophecies, but are they biblical? Dr. Mark Hitchcock has written a book on the subject, and in this teaching, he refutes this popular idea, challenging the church not to get swept up in the latest ideas, but to stay focused on the scriptures. Let's join Dr. Hitchcock now with the message entitled, Blood Moons Rising. Well, it's good to see everybody back here tonight. Thank you all so much for coming. That uh, story that uh, Ross just told reminded me of the story I read, too, about the, uh, you know, when Coca-Cola, whenever they came out, remember with New Coke years ago? A lot of you all remember that. Some of you are probably too young to remember that. But some of the greatest, uh, you know, marketing blunders of all time, they're going to come out with the New Coke. And heard someone use that as a great illustration one time. You know, when you have a classic, you don't mess with it. And, uh, you know, we have the classic in God's Word. But people are always trying to come up with something new or different. And certainly our methodologies can change some over time and all of that. But we don't mess with the, we don't mess with the formula that God's given to us. Well, we, uh, I thought we'd talk about uh, the blood moon prophecy tonight. Before we do that, I thought I'd give this little test for all of us, the top ten ways to know if you're obsessed with Bible prophecy. So kind of give yourself this little test tonight before we start. Uh, number ten, use the Left Behind books as devotional reading. Uh, number nine, you get goosebumps when you hear a trumpet. Number eight, you believe the term church fathers refers to Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye. Number seven, you believe there's an original Greek and Hebrew text with Schofield's notes, you know, the old Schofield Bible. Uh, Number six, you can name more signs of the times than you can commandments. Number five, you refuse a tax refund check because the amount comes to $666. Number four, barcode scanners make you nervous. Number three, you talk your church into adapting the 60s pop song Up, Up, and Away as a Christian hymn. Number two, you never buy green bananas. I like that because Jesus can come at any time, right? So you buy, buy your bananas ripe. You don't buy them green. And the number one way to know if you're obsessed with Bible prophecy is you always leave the top down in your convertible in case the rapture happens. <laughs> so anyway, you can look at that. You know, I, I always tell people, people always wonder sometimes, you know, with someone like myself, you know, obsessed with prophecy. I, you know, I'm the pastor of a church, so we teach all different things. I, I do happen to be in a series right now on Sunday mornings on the book of Revelation, but we teach through different books of the Bible, different topics. But, you know, I asked I ask John Walvard one time. Some of you know that name. Does anybody here know Dr. Walvard? John Walvard, a great Bible scholar. He's really the, the dean of Bible prophecy. He started teaching back in the 1930s that Israel would be a nation again. And, of course, you know, people in his denomination thought he was crazy. And about 12 years later, there they were. But I asked Dr. Walvard one time, because he was a teacher of Bible prophecy and eschatology. I asked him one time, we used to have lunch at this place called the Dixie House, and I'd ask him about 8 million questions about prophecy. And he was always kind to just sit there and talk to me as long as I wanted to. And um, I asked him one time, I said, why do you love Bible prophecy so much? And he looked at me and he said, because I love the Bible. He said, you know, almost a third of the Bible is prophecy. So he said, if you love Bible prophecy, if you love the Bible, then you love Bible prophecy. And to me, that's the best answer I've ever heard. 
is that, you know, I really thought about that, and that's really true in my case. It's not so much just, you know, there's a love for prophecy, but it's just a love for the Bible. And uh, so much of the Bible is prophecy. And what I found when I was a young man is when I was reading through the Bible and I didn't understand prophecy, I didn't understand 90% of the time what I was reading. So I really started studying prophecy to help me learn the Bible. So I'd encourage you, you know, maybe to, uh, to get a good book on prophecy, an overview of it, because it'll really help just your, your total grasp of scriptures and that one-third of the Bible uh, that is prophetic. So, you know, I hope that our, our time together, even if you're not a, you know, a prophecy nut or someone who's really interested, it'll, it'll grab your attention because another reason I think it's important to know it today is just because so many people are talking about these things. There's a lot of people out there that have a lot of questions, wondering where this world's headed. They may be wondering where they're headed, and that we can help them understand these things from the Bible. Well, tonight I want to talk about the blood moons, four blood moons. Now, has anybody here heard about blood, the blood moons prophecy or these things are coming? Yes, a lot of you all have. Well, for those who haven't, I'll explain what, it, what it's about. And, and uh, for those of you who have heard of this and maybe read some of the books related to it, this will be something maybe of a refresher for you. But there, there's four blood moons that are coming. One of them's already passed. There's three more that are, that are going to take place. And a lot of people are, and I'll, I'll explain what a blood moon is in a minute. But they believe, uh, many do, that these portend some great world-changing event. Do you remember uh, a few years ago, in fact, I wrote a book on this also, on uh, the whole Mayan calendar deal in 2012 and all of that? Uh, this is kind of another thing like that, except that was secular. You know, that was the Mayan calendar and all. This is something that people are pointing to in the Bible and as a biblical sign of the times. And I, I think these kinds of things today are gaining traction unlike any time in history. Because, again, people see the uncertainty in our world, and so people are, are, are have this in the back of their mind that maybe this is the end. So when these kind of things come out there, I think they gain a lot more traction than they used to at other times. But what I want to talk about is blood moons. Is this a legitimate sign, or is this just hype? Um, is this a sign, or is it sensationalism? Is, it, is this a harbinger of things to come, or is it just hype? Now, I first heard about these blood moons in the fall of 2008. I was at a prophecy conference I was speaking at, and there was another man who was a speaker there, and he believed that the Lord of uh, the rapture has to happen on the Feast of Trumpets, which there's a problem with that view because every year after the Feast of Trumpets goes by, if the Lord doesn't come, then you're off the hook for another year. And it's kind of, well, he can't come for another year. And to me, it destroys the whole idea of imminency. But he was convinced of that, and he was convinced the Lord was coming in the fall of 2008. Um, he did everything but say Jesus was coming in the fall of 2008 on the Feast of Trumpets. But then he, they always hedged their bets a little bit at the end. So, well, now I'm not saying he's coming for sure, but, you know, they go on. But that's where I first heard about this. And he was talking about, well, these blood moons are coming. And if he doesn't come in 2008, then it's going to be in 2014 or 15. So I want to look at this, and, and John Hagee has written a book. A lot of you are familiar with John Hagee, pastor of Cornerstone Church in San Antonio. I watched, I've watched several programs on this, and they had two full hours on TBN one night about this blood moon's prophecy. This book is, uh, I don't know how many copies it's sold now. It's probably somewhere between six or 700,000 and a million copies. A lot of Christians have read this book. And it stirred up a great deal of interest in the blood moon's prophecy. John Hagee's an interesting man. Um, your pastor asked me to mention a couple things. I, you know, he, you listen to him talk about Israel and his love for Israel, and he's right on. A lot of his prophecy teaching is. But he's come up with this idea, this blood moon's prophecy. But he's also, he has an interesting kind of a dual covenant view, and that is he believes that Jewish people don't need to be saved. 
you know, they have their own covenant, you know, with God, the Abrahamic covenant. And so we need to leave them alone. Uh, they're safe uh, through the covenants they have. Gentiles need to be converted, but Jews are safe. And so there, there's teaching that he has like that on some issues that are interesting. He's also the other thing about him. I mean, there's some good things about him, but some of his associations as well. We don't want to give guilt by association. But when you invite people to your church who are, to, to say it kindly, kind of fringe type people, that always makes you wonder about the person uh, who, who's invited them there. Because I know the pastor here and myself, I mean, there, there's a lot of these people. I mean, I wouldn't allow them to come speak at our church. I don't care what they gave me. You know, they give anything. You know, they're not going to come there because they're, they're outside of orthodoxy. But anyway, those, those are a couple things about uh, John Haggard. He's written this book, a big bestseller. Uh, Mark Biltz is the man who actually came up with this whole blood moons theory. Um, he, he's uh, from Tacoma, Washington, heads up El Shaddai Ministries. I actually kind of had a dialogue, debate, discussion, whatever you want to call it, with him. And you all know Jan Markell's ministry, uh, Olive Tree Ministries. I have, we were both on there together, and we had this. It's been about, oh, they played it two or three weeks ago or something like that. So it was interesting uh, talking with him. But he's the one who kind of came up with all this. Now, this is the best book on the topic right here. <laughs> Uh, obviously, it's, uh, I agree with everything the author says. But I, you know, when I see a lot of these things out there coming in Christianity, like this Blood Moons book and selling almost a million copies and all these people reading this and people asking me questions about it, you need a balance to what other people are teaching. And I want uh, the body of Christ to know uh, what the issues are in our, in our world today and be ready to give an answer to what they believe and why. And I think we need to understand the times in which we live and live in, li- and live in light of those. But part of understanding the times is to know what we believe, but it's also to be able to critique other things that aren't uh, sound and solid in their, their understanding of the Bible. So with that in mind, i kind of just get into this. And, uh, you know, we ask the question, first of all, what is a blood moon? A blood moon is a lunar eclipse. When a lunar eclipse happens, the, the moon turns kind of a, a reddish, yellowish type hue because uh, what happens is the, the earth comes between the sun and the moon, and the longer wavelength, uh, the red and, and orange are longer wavelength, they get on around the earth. The rest is blocked, and so the moon kind of turns a reddish color. Did a lot of you hear about that last blood moon that we had? A lot of people got it in the middle of the night and went out and saw that, and uh, sometimes they're more red than others. But that's what a blood moon is. And you can see a a picture of it here. I mean, it's obvious you have the sun. The earth gets between the sun and the moon, and the moon gets eclipsed. And, of course, a a solar eclipse is the opposite of that. The moon gets over between the earth and the sun, and and, uh, the earth is eclipsed or the sun is eclipsed at that point in time. So that's what a blood moon is. But it sounds kind of mysterious, you know, to me. With all that's happening in our world today, people are kind of on edge anyway and wondering about these things. But a blood moon, that just kind of has a mysterious sound to it. And so I think part of the reason this has captured people's attention so much is just the whole idea of a blood moon and what that means. And here's again kind of the, the way it fades in. It kind of turns an orangish color and then kind of a brighter red color. And so this was one back in, in 2000. Now, there, there are blood moons a lot. There, there's a lot of lunar eclipses that happen, but something really interesting thing is happening, happening this year and next year now that we want to look at. So what is the significance of this blood moon prophecy? Uh, there are going to be four lunar eclipses that are going to occur on two Jewish feast days. That's why people see this as so significant. 
There was one, uh, the first one is on Pat, was on Passover in 2014. The next one's this fall on the Feast of Tabernacles. Then there's one next spring on the Feast of Passover again, and then one the next fall on the Feast of, of Tabernacles. And so when you have four of these together, it's called uh, a lunar tetrad, four of these falling on these Jewish feast days. And so because of that, many people see this as being significant. Here's what John Hagee says. Now, this is a pretty bold statement. He says, the history of the world is about to change forever. Now, that's a pretty bold statement, right? God is sending us messages on His high-definition billboard by speaking to us in the heavens using the four blood moons. The question is, are we listening? What earth-shaking event will it be? So the, the people who hold of this say, look, the heavens are God's high-definition billboard. He, he, he tells us what He's going to do in the heavens, and the fact that these four blood moons are going to happen is something that is kind of like God shouting to us. So are we listening to Him, and what's going to take place? Then He says this, this we know, things are about to change forever. These occurrences are not coincidental. This is the hand of God orchestrating the signs in the heavens. The final four blood moons are signaling that something big is coming, something that will change the world forever. Now, he never specifically says what's going to happen that will change the world forever, but he talks a lot about a war in Israel. I think he expects a war in Israel to take place in 2014 or 15. Also, he says in his book, and I heard him say on on TBN, that something dramatic is going to happen to America if we don't repent. And one of the things he does is he also points out that 2015 will be what's called the Shemitah year. Shemitah year is a sabbatical year. Remember, every seventh year in Judaism was a sabbatical year, what was called the Shemitah year. And to him, that adds even more significance to this. So 2015, you're going to have these two blood moons on these two Jewish feast days, and it's a Shemitah year, sabbatical year. And every seven years is a Shemitah year. And he says, well, you got 2015, and you back up seven years, that's 2008, and we have the great economic uh, collapse here in our country. You go back seven more years, that's 2001, we had 9-11. And then he, he keeps doing this and going back, but he only goes back as far as 1973, which is the year that Roe versus Wade uh, became law. And he's saying that because of this seven-year pattern like that, something dramatic is going to happen in 2015. Now, the problem with that is, to me, to prove that thesis, you'd have to keep going back every seven years, wouldn't you, and keep showing that. You can't just arbitrarily start at uh, the year t- 1973. Plus, some of the ones he has are kind of a little bit tenuous anyway. But if you do keep going back, I also noticed 1959 was a Schmidt year, and something very significant happened that year. I was born, and so was your pastor, so (laughs) that may have been it. So, you know, I know my mom thought that was significant at the time when that took place, so. But you can see how they tie a lot of different things together here to kind of come up with this. Here's what Mark Bilt says. He says, something remarkable is on the horizon. God is about to move mightily in the world. When God is about to be up to something big, He will send us signals via the sun and the moon on His feast days. This is huge. So, again, He doesn't say what it is, but He expects a major prophetic war involving Israel because of this blood moon prophecy. So that's what they're saying, and they're gaining a lot of, uh, getting a lot of interest uh, in this out there in the media. Now, let's talk briefly about the sequence of the blood moon's prophecy. Like, uh, is, is this the final four? You know, remember the old basketball tournament they have? So a lot of people think this is going to be the final four. But here are the dates for these. 
The first one was back on Passover on April the 15th of 2014. And uh, that's, uh, that's interesting. That was also tax day, which kind of added a little more ominous tone to it as well. And then this fall on, on uh, October the 8th of 2014, there's going to be one of these blood moons on the Feast of Tabernacles. Then it's interesting, it's too in the middle there, and, and on March in 2015, there'll be a, a solar eclipse. Then on Passover in next year in 2015, on, on uh, April 4th, there's going to be another one. And then the final one, and it's actually going to be what's called a super moon, which is pretty rare, is going to be on September the 28th of 2015. So they look at this and they say, boy, this has to be significant. I mean, you know, this is going to be a Shemitah year. This is these blood moons happening on these feast days. And so that's what's called the blood moon tetrad. They're Passover, then Sukkot is tabernacles. That's the word used for booths in the Old Testament. Then again on Passover, then again on Sukkot. So they point to this and they say this has uh, ominous significance for events especially in Israel, but also, they'll say, in the United States because of the Shemitah year. So four lunar eclipses on those, on, on those days. Now, let's look at the support for this, the biblical support for it, and, and others as well. Everybody agrees. I mean, scientists can tell us, astronomers tell us, there's going to be four blood moons on two Jewish feast days of Passover and Tabernacles. So we know that. That's, that's not uh, being disputed. But the question is, what is the significance of this, or is there any uh, significance to this? So let me just give you a little bit of the support that they give. First of all, their, their big primary thesis is that God uses the signs as high-definition billboards to tell us what He's going to do on earth. They go back to Genesis 1.14 here in the NIV. It says, God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. So the contention is God created the sun and the moon to serve as signs in the heavens. Now that's true. And they do serve as signs to mark sacred times. I mean, the, the Jewish people did use the sun and the moon to mark sacred times, and they also mark days and years. But it doesn't mean here that everything that happens in the heavens is some type of scientism. There's a lot of it that's just regular part of the rhythm that God has placed there. Um, and I do believe that God does use the heavens at, as key, at key points as signs to mankind. In uh, Luke 21, 25, Jesus said, there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and distress among nations and perplexity at the roaring of the waves. So Jesus said there are going to be signs in the heavens in the end times. So they point to these things and see them as significant. One of the other things they point to is they'll say, well, God has done this before. They'll say, look at the Bethlehem star. You know, the Bethlehem star appeared to the, the wise men in the east and guided them uh, to, to Israel. And uh, so God uses things like this at, at key times in history. A couple of things let me point out about that. The Bethlehem star, um, I believe, was a supernatural shining. I don't believe it was a star up in heaven somewhere. And I believe it was supernatural. It wasn't a natural occurrence. To say, well, why do you say that? Well, if you go back, if you go back and look at Matthew chapter 2, and you might read this on your own. It's, a, it's fascinating because I think most people have never thought of it in this way is it says that uh, the wise men came to Jerusalem and say, you know, we've seen his, you know, where is he who's born in the east? And we've seen, or where, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east and we've come to worship him. So they come to Jerusalem to find this king to worship him. But it says, we saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. 
So to me, the implication in the passage is they saw this light when they were in the east, this shining, but they didn't see it all the way. But in other words, they come to Jerusalem because that's kind of the main city that they would expect the king to be born in. And the word star there that's used in Matthew is the word austere, and it can mean a shining. It can be used of, of some type of brilliance. In fact, in, uh, it's used in, uh, in the book of Revelation, Jesus is the bride and the morning star. And we know he's not a, a literal star, but he's a shining so I think it was something like the Shekinah glory of God that appeared to them and let them know that this king had been born. Well, they travel all the way to Jerusalem, and they walk around there, and they can't find anybody who knows about this. And they, you know, Herod calls in the scribes, and they tell him, you know, the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem, quotes Micah 5, 2. And then it says, the, the wise men go on their way, and it says, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy when they saw the star that appeared to them in the east. So the idea is it's reappeared now. And one of the things is, is that star goes and, and guides them right to the house where Jesus is staying. Well, you know, it'd be hard to look up in the heavens at night and say, that star is pointing right down to that house over there. And so to me, it was something that guided them to the exact place. And it's, of course, a house by that time. It's not the, the manger scene. This is later when the wise men uh, arrive there. So I think the Bethlehem star was supernatural, and it was limited in scope. Only the wise men saw it. This wasn't a, a high-definition billboard to mankind. It's for the wise men to guide them uh, there. They'll also point to the darkness at Calvary. They'll say, you know, it was dark at, at Calvary for, for three hours there, from, from noon till 3 o'clock. But again... That was supernatural darkness for three hours in the middle of the day. Again, this wasn't a, a lunar eclipse or something like that. It was, it was supernatural darkness in the middle of the day. So again, I don't think that really helps uh, their thesis either. The, the cosmic signs of the end times, I think, are going to be supernatural events as well. They're not going to be natural events like eclipses and things like that. So I kind of reject their whole thesis of how these signs work, these heavenly signs. There's another thing they point to, and this really gets a lot of people, because there's historical precedent they point to. There have been eight lunar tetrads in the last 20 centuries, where you have these, these blood moons falling on these Jewish feast days. A.D. 162, 63, 795 and 96, 842, 843, 861, 868, 61, 1428, 1429, then these last three you can see there. Now, what they do is they go back and say, when all these happened in the past, there was always some real significant event for Israel. Now, I've gone back and researched it, and the first five that they have there, you would have to say that the connections to the Jewish people are tenuous at best. They're having to go out and kind of dredge something up, you know, to make it fit. But when you come to these last three, in 1493 and 94, you had, the, you had uh, something going on in Spain where, and remember in 1492, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella passed the edict of the expulsion of the Jews. So the Jews were expelled from Spain. And the Spanish used a lot of their money that they uh, took from them uh, to actually fund Columbus's journey to, to America. And so they'll say, you know, all this bad thing happened to the Jews, but then God used that to cause Columbus to discover the Americas where the Jewish people would receive a safe haven. So they point to that and they say, look, that happened right at the time of this, first, uh, this tetrad. Well, you go to 1949 and 50, well, 1948, May 14th is when the modern state of Israel was founded. And the next two years was just these, these, this tetrad. They'll say, look at the connection. 
And then they go to 1967, 68, and you had the first blood moon in the spring of 67, and then in June of 67, you had the six-day war, and then you had the other three. So they say, look, this has happened over and over again in history, and so this has to be of great significance. Now, again, um, this, the, the ones this year, 2014 and 15, will be the ninth, and they'll be the, the only one in this century of, the, of this tetrad. As again, though, the first five of these are fairly tenuous, but here's the problem to me uh, with uh, these last ones, these last few. In 1493 and 94, you had the fall of, of Spain that the Jews expel. Columbus discovers America. But remember, the blood moons are in 1493 and 94, and the great event for the Jews happened in 1492. So it happened the year before these blood moons occurred, which it's hard for something to be a sign if it happens after the event. It's kind of like, you know, driving down the road and they put your sign up for your exit two miles past the exit. You know, it doesn't do you a whole lot of good down there. You need it before the exit tell you what to do. So, you know, they say, this is such a great sign. Well, if you follow that pattern, then we should have expected a great event in Israel in 2013. Same thing with 1949 and 50. The events followed the, the uh, 1948, the founding of Israel. Now, it, does, it is interesting, in 67, 68, the, the events did occur during the time of the blood moons. It was between the first and second blood moons when the Six-Day War happened. But again, I've had so many people come up to me and say, man, I read this book, and these events are happening the same time as events in Israel. This has got to be you know, a dead sense for, for this thing to be true. And I just started looking at it myself. And again, five of the first five, the, the connection to Israel is very, very tenuous. I mean, it's, it's stretched. The next two, the events happen uh, before the blood moons happen. Only the 67, 68, six-day war really, really fits the pattern. So to me, that's a problem with this. Um, you know, it's not, it's not a, a close an argument as they argue. Now, they also turn to Scripture uh, to make their case. Uh, the first passage they go to, if you'll turn there with me, Joel chapter 2, uh, verse 31, they go to the Bible and try to prove their case as well. And so let's look at a few of the scriptures they use. And I want to show you, and this, this is really tonight, if nothing else, is a good exercise in how we interpret the Bible. Because I think that uh, those who are falling for this blood moon prophecy are interpreting these passages incorrectly. And I was on... Uh, when I was in the uh, dialogue I was having with, with Mark Biltz on, on Jan Markell's program, at one point during it, uh, he said to me, he says, the problem with you is you just don't know how to interpret the Bible. <laughs> and I didn't say anything back to him about it, you know, but um, what I wanted to say is uh, I beg to differ <laughs> with that. But anyway, we, we kept going on discussing. But look at Joel chapter 2. Joel, the book of Joel is uh, a great book in the Old Testament. The, the day of the Lord is mentioned five times in this book. And the day of the Lord in that day was a locust plague that God had sent on the people. But Joel has a lot of prophetic material in it. And in Joel chapter 2 and verse 31, and remember this is part of the section that Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It says there, the sun will be... uh, Well, let me beginning read verse 30. God says, I will display wonders in the sky and on earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape. So they say, when they get to verse 31 here, it says... The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. 
Now they say, well, look, the day of the Lord is the coming time of the tribulation. And it says this is going to happen before the day of the Lord. And so we're not in the tribulation yet. So this is before uh, the day uh, of the Lord. Well, look, there's several problems with this. And again, when you point this out to them, they just kind of ignore what you're saying. But it says, I will display wonders in the sky and on earth, fire, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. Well, you have to take all this together. You can't just pick out the blood moons and say, it's the moon turning to blood fulfills this. There's going to have to be blood, fire, columns of smoke. And then it says the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. The way those are written there, it seems to me they're going to happen at the same time. But the problem is you can't have the sun darkened and a blood moon at the same time because you have to have the, the, the sun shining for there to be a, a blood moon. And then you'll notice he says, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. There's what's interesting in Joel. Four times in Joel, you have the words, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord that's coming. But here, it's the great and terrible day of the Lord. And I take it here that this, these, these adjectives that are added, this isn't just the day of the Lord, the, the broad time of the day of the Lord. This is the great and the terrible day of the Lord. It's the day of the second coming. Because if you want to find a day that is the day of the Lord, it's the day that Jesus comes back. It's called here the great and the terrible day of the Lord. It's only used one other time I know of in Malachi uh, chapter 4 where it says Elijah is going to come before that great and terrible day of the Lord. So I think the setting for this passage then is during the time of the future tribulation, before the great and awesome day of the Lord, that is the second coming uh, of Christ. So let me mention a couple other ones. Go over to Matthew 24, verse 29. This is another one that they use. And you, you'll be able to see a lot of these things probably just on your own. Uh, you know, you don't need a, some Bible scholar to point it out to you. Just read what it says. In Matthew 24, the mini apocalypse, Jesus, it's the sermon he gave there on, on the Mount of Olives two days before he died on the cross. And he's been giving a list of the signs that are going to portend his coming. And he says in chapter 24, verse 29, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, stars will fall from the sky, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. When's this going to happen? What's the beginning of the verse say? After the tribulation of those days. So this is at the end of the tribulation period. Well, we're not at the end of the tribulation yet. We're not even in it yet. So 2014-15 can't be the time of the, of the future tribulation period where we, it hadn't even started yet. So the, the context here again for the moon being darkened and the, and the, and the sun uh, being darkened here is in the tribulation. Uh, turn over to Matthew 20 or to Luke 21. Luke 21, this is another passage where Jesus mentions signs in the heavens. Jesus says in Luke 21, 25, there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and upon the earth dismay among nations and perplexity, the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So I said, well, look here, Jesus said there's going to be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. And I tell him, look, I agree with that. But notice the next verse, verse 27. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So this is the, the context of this is the second coming. It's Jesus' return and glory to the earth. All these cosmic signs are going to happen right before that. And again, we can't be in that time in 2014-15 because tribulation hadn't even started yet. Um, we won't turn to Acts chapter 2. Uh, that's where Peter quotes 
uh, Joel 2 on the day of Pentecost. But one other one, back in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 12, we've been uh, going through the book of Revelation verse by verse at our church back home, and we just looked at this passage here a few weeks ago. Notice Revelation 6, 12. These are the seal judgments. Jesus is breaking the seals on that seven-sealed scroll. He says, And I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island were removed out of their places. So I go to this and say, well, look, here again, we have a, a mention of, of a blood moon, the moon turning to blood. Well, again, the context of Revelation chapter 6 is in this sixth seal, I believe, is about the midpoint of the tribulation period. So 2014 and 15 can't be the middle of the tribulation. We're not even in it yet. And notice here, it says, the sun became black as sackcloth and the whole moon became blood. Again, you can't have the moon darkened and a blood moon at the same time. But it says the stars fall to the earth. Now, when it says stars of the sky fall to the earth, this is not talking about like, you know, massive stars like Betelgeuse or something you know, coming down and hitting the earth. It'd be obliterated. The word stars there, again, is that word austere, and it can mean asteroids or meteorites or things like that. So, you know, the fear that people have, you know, all these, all these uh, apocalyptic movies always have uh, asteroids or meteors, meteorites coming to the earth. That's going to happen someday. Now, it's not going to be large enough ones to destroy the earth, but they are going to disrupt the earth. So you notice, again, you can't just pick out one thing and say, oh, there's the blood moons in 2014-15, so that's the fulfillment of this. It's a package deal. Uh, you have to take all of it. So, again, this is kind of a lesson for us in just interpreting the Bible and seeing what's in the passage and what's not in the passage. Um, here's another thing that's, that's important about all this is notice none of these passages we've looked at mentioned four blood moons. The whole thesis of this is these four blood moons are so significant, it never mentions those anywhere. Now, that's an argument from silence, but to me it's a strong argument from silence because it just mentions the moon turning to blood. It doesn't mention uh, four of them. And again, if you look at this chapter here in, in Revelation 6, all these things like the earthquake, the sun becoming black, the stars uh, falling to the earth, these again are supernatural events. And so I think the blood moon here, the, the moon turning to blood by God is a supernatural event uh, as well. It's not just something uh, that's happen happening naturally. So that's a bit of, of, of that and kind of dealing with their view of Scripture. So let me give you kind of a summary now of the blood moon prophecy. I want to give you five reasons why I reject this blood moon's prophecy as a discernible sign of the times. I mentioned a few of them, but let me mention a couple of other things. The first is, is visibility. Whenever these blood moons occur this year and next year, only one of them is going to be visible in the land of Israel. Blood moons, lunar eclipses are not visible all over the earth. They're only visible in certain places. Now, to me, it, it's interesting that if these blood moons are a great sign for the Jewish people in the nation of Israel, that you wouldn't be able to see them in Israel. Now, what they'll say is they'll say, well, but with 24-7 news and all we have now, you can see them on TV and all of that. Well, the problem is in 1493 and 1494 in those blood moons, you didn't see them on TV. Probably didn't even see the ones in 1949 and 50 on TV, really, at that time either. And it's still different to me seeing something on TV and it being a sign. I always like to say, you know, what if the wise men had seen their sign on TV you know, or something back in that day? Wouldn't have had quite the effect, would it? 
Now, you need to be able to see it, I think. And so only the final one of the blood moons in 2014, the one September 28th, 2015, will be visible in the land of Israel. Whereas when you read the Bible, the cosmic portents in the Bible are unmistakable. They're universal. In Revelation 1-7, when Jesus comes, every eye is going to see him. In uh, Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 to 16, the earthquake, the sun becoming black, these seem to be universal and and visible and unmistakable. So to me, the the lack of the visibility of this is just a strong argument against it. Also, as I uh, I mentioned earlier, uh, the context of the passages mentioning the moon turning to blood are in the last half of the tribulation or have to do with the second coming. And uh, these cosmic signs in the Bible, like the Bethlehem star, the darkness at Calvary, these things are supernatural. And, as I already said too, there is no mention of four blood moons on these Jewish feast days. So this entire prophecy is built on something the Bible never actually says. And we want to follow what the Bible specifically, literally says. Another problem with this whole blood moons prophecy to me is the whole issue of date setting. You know, obviously, the, the Bible says no one knows the time of the Lord's coming. And neither uh, John Hagee nor Mark Biltz, although Biltz has been accused of being a date setter in the past, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt and say, neither Hagee nor Mark Biltz have set a date for the Lord's coming. I mean, Jesus said, you know, heaven and earth will pass away, my words will not pass away. That day and that hour, no one knows the time except the Father. He says, not even the angels, not even the Son. So during his incarnation, Jesus didn't even know the time. But I see things like this blood moon prophecy as what I call soft date setting. In other words, they're not setting a date for the Lord's coming, but John Hagee, if you remember those quotes I read earlier, says, says clearly, something is about to change forever in the world in 2015. Well, that's date setting to me. It's saying something dramatic is going to happen at a certain time period. Now, what if nothing like that happens in 2015? Well, people are going to say, well, then the Bible's wrong. Well, the Bible wasn't wrong. John Hagee was wrong. But again, that's part of the whole problem of all of this. You know, it's interesting as well. I'll just kind of throw this in as a, a sidelight. Um, I've heard Hagee and others say, and you, all, you may have heard this as well, they go back to, uh, to Matthew 24, verse 34, where Jesus said, uh, this generation will not pass away until all these things be fulfilled. You know, he says, you, know, the, you see the, the uh, fig tree, you know, or the, uh, the, the fig tree begins to blossom, and he says, you know, these things won't pass away until all these things have been fulfilled. And what a lot of people have done is they go back, to, they go to that passage and they, they interpret the blossoming of the fig tree that Jesus mentioned as the rebirth of the modern state of Israel. And they say that Jesus is saying there that that generation that saw Israel become a nation won't pass away until all these things are fulfilled. So you had a lot of prophecy teachers back in the 70s and 80s saying a generation is 40 years, and so Jesus has to come back before 1988. And several people set 88 as the, as the time. You remember that? Remember uh, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988, that book by Edgar Wisenat? That uh, didn't work out too well, so he wrote 89 Reasons Why Christ is going to come back in ni- why the rapture will happen in 1989. And I always like to say neither one of those books are selling very well uh, these days. But it's based on the prophecy back in uh, the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 24. So what they did is then they said, well, now, wait a minute. A generation is, uh, is 60 years, so it's 2008. 
And uh, now they're saying, well, no, a generation is 80 years, some of them. And John Hagee's saying now a generation is 100 years uh, long. So they keep moving it because Jesus said, learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branch has become tender, puts forth its leaves, you know summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, recognize he is near. This generation won't pass away till all this takes place. The problem is the fig tree blossoming there is not a picture, I don't believe, of Israel's rebirth as a nation. It's just an illustration Jesus is giving. He's just saying, look, when you see a fig tree begin to blossom and uh, begin to, to put forth its leaves, then you know summer is near. And he says, in the same way, when you see all these things, all these things means all the things Jesus has listed, then you can know that he's coming. He says, this generation that sees these things won't pass away. What generation is that? The generation that's during the tribulation period. That generation will see those things, and Jesus will come back uh, within seven years' time. So I say that because those like Haggai who point to the, the, the fig tree being Israel and keep trying to measure a generation at some period of time, that's another form of soft date setting to me because they're saying the Lord has to come back by 2018 or some other date uh, that they put out there. And the problem with that is nobody knows the time. You shouldn't set a date as a Christian for any event in the future at any, at any point in time. Regard, not, not the second coming, not the rapture, but not any other event either. We shouldn't be saying, oh, in 2015, everything in the world's going to change. Oh, some huge event's going to happen. It's going to change the world uh, forever. To me, that's uh, irresponsible to do that. The final thing here is, is this prophecy is what I call uh, self-validating. It's a self-validating uh, prophecy. Uh, Mark uh, Biltz says this. He writes his whole book, I mean, just getting you all lathered up about this blood moons deal and how significant it is. And then near the end of the book, he says this, if nothing noteworthy happens in 2014 or 15, it just means these are signs of things to come. So it's like, well, I mean, you could say that about anything. So you know, it gets you all, but so if nothing happens, they're just signs of something in the future. And then he says this, we, we have had the first two tetrads after Israel became a nation, and then again when they recaptured Jerusalem, referring to these past ones. This is our third warning. I'm not prophesying or predicting what will happen over the next two years, but if you look at scriptures alongside the patterns of history, we can definitely say two things. Based on what happened in 1947 and 67, there's a high probability of a major prophetic war that will involve Israel. We said these are two things that you can definitely say, and it's definite that there will be a high probability of a war in Israel. Well, high probability is not definite. He says, at least a few major biblical wars are yet to come, and goes on to mention those. Then he says, to me, all these signs coming together at one time are potentially the culminating signals that God is closing this chapter in human history. This could be the final curtain call before the great tribulation mentioned in the Bible. Well, you can say potentially and could be all day about anything. You see, here's the problem to me with this is they come along and say something major, th- th- these blood moons are happening, something big is going to happen in Israel in the next two years. Well, you know, I could say something big is going to happen in Israel the next two years without the blood moon prophecy, Right? <laughs> I mean, something big's you know, happening over there right now. When you're surrounded by a, in a sea of enemies like Israel is, something big can happen any time. So you don't have to be some great prophet or have some great insight to say that. Any person that's just familiar with geopolitics would say, Israel is, is sitting on top of a powder keg over there. The top of it could blow off at any time. So to me, when I say this prophecy is self-validating, what's going to happen is maybe is... 
is you're going to have some kind of you know, war based on what's going on there with Hamas shooting these rockets or some escalation or something. And if nothing big happens the rest of the time of this blood moon prophecy, they're going to say, well, that was it. You know, that, that thing happened over in Israel. So they'll find something that they'll be able to point to that will be, quote, the fulfillment of this. But again, the world's going to change. It's something dramatic. The world's going to change forever. I mean, what's happening over there in Israel right now is not changing the world forever. But this is going to be kind of a self-validating uh, prophecy. So, look, let me say this. I believe in signs of the times. I, I believe strongly. I mean, that's what I preached on uh, here this morning during our service. I think the, the coming peace treaty that we see uh, in, in the works over there that's going to have to happen, globalism, the Gog-Magog war, Russia and Iran there in Ezekiel 38 and 39, uh, the world focus on the Middle East, uh, apostasy, all these different things. I believe these are discernible signs of the times. But I don't believe... Uh, that this blood moon's prophecy is uh, a sign of the times. It's interesting. I mean, I'll grant you that it's interesting, but it's not a sign of the times. It just doesn't stand up uh, to the biblical test. So may God help all of us to, to maybe use the information you've received here tonight to talk to other Christians. A lot of my friends who are pastors, you know, tell me that they got people in their congregation reading these books, you know, about the blood moons and you know, how to respond to that. But, you know, just people out there in, your, in, in culture, at your work, uh, as these blood moons come, especially if some things begin to happen in Israel and this gets on the news and everyone's talking about it, we can use these kinds of things, even though I believe they're error, we can still use those as a platform to share the gospel with people. And you can say, you know, I, I don't really think the Bible uh, says that. And if they point to some of those verses, you can tell them that. Then you can say, but let me tell you what the Bible does say about the future and uh, what you need to know. So I think we, could, we did the same thing with the 2012, you know, the whole Mayan calendar. Deal. We, can, we can leverage these things that are out there in our popular culture, and we can bend them to uh, the trajectory that we want to share the gospel uh, with other people. You know, the furor over this whole blood moons deal and, and the response we should have reminds me of something that happened years ago. There's, there's been these kind of doomsday things that have happened in the past. Back on uh, May the 19th of 1780 in, in the northeastern part of the United States, a great darkness came over the land. And it, they've never really explained up to this date what happened. But I've got a quote here uh, from uh, Timothy Dwight of Yale. He's got a book called Travels in New England. It's published in 1822. And he, he talks about what happened there in, in the Hartford uh, House of Representatives. Their leader was, their, uh, their uh, speaker of the house at the time was a man named Colonel Abraham Davenport, who was a Christian. Here's what Timothy Dwight uh, wrote years ago. He said, the 19th of May, 1780 was a remarkably dark day. Candles were lighted in many houses. The birds were silent and they disappeared. The fowls retired to roost. The legislature of Connecticut was then in session at, Hart at Hartford. A very general opinion prevailed. The day of judgment was at hand. You can imagine back in that day. You know, the people believed the Bible. The day of judgment's at hand. It says, uh, it says, the House of Representatives, being unable to transact their business, adjourned. A proposal was uh, to, uh, to adjourn the council. The senator upper house was under consideration. When the opinion of Colonel, William, of Colonel uh, Abraham Davenport was asked, he said this, I am an against an adjournment. The day of judgment is either approaching or it's not. If it's not, there's no cause for an adjournment. And if it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. I wish, therefore, that candles be brought in. That's a great answer, isn't it? 
You know, you get up every day and somebody says, well, the day of judgment might be today. Well, if it's the day of judgment, if it's approaching, that's approaching, right? We, nothing we can do about that, but be ready. And if it's not, then we, we, we want to be found doing our duty. We ask that candles be brought in. Our world's getting darker, uh, literally and spiritually, and some are, are heralding the darkening of the sun and the moon as these great omens, you know, of, of disaster uh, for the future. But I want to follow the example of Abraham Davenport and uh, bring in the candles and keep shining our, our light in the darkness, keep laboring for Christ till He comes. So may God help us to do that. Well, let's pray together. Well, Father, we come before You again, and we thank You most of all for our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you tell us, Lord, in Your Word there in Joel chapter 2, we just read it a few moments ago, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, that's the the greatest message you've ever brought to mankind. And Father, we realize, all of us do here, that the the price for our sins has to be paid. Somebody has to pay the price. God can't just overlook our sin. Father, we can either accept the payment that Jesus made for us, or we're going to have to pay for our sins ourselves. So Father, I pray that every person here tonight is resting securely in Jesus Christ that they've accepted and received that payment that he made for us when he died uh, there on the cross in our place. Father, I pray you'd help us to be people who understand the times. And Father, help us like, uh, like Colonel Abraham Davenport to bring in the candles and to be found busy when our Savior comes. We ask these things in his dear name. Amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvertherock.org.